Hello, and welcome to The X-Ray. I'm Fernando Espuelas in Washington. It's hard to imagine a dumber situation. At a time when the economy teeters on the verge of recession, Congress decides to stage a major clown show. The debt ceiling crisis, 100% manufactured by partisans, is now on its way to being resolved, if the left and right wings of both parties can summon the will to approve the deal negotiated by President Biden and Speaker McCarthy. And what did the American people get for several months of threats to cause a depression-level economic crisis? Uh, lots, I guess. Uh, real economic instability, flirting with losing our credit rating, and a big dollop of deja vu. For once again, members of Congress have decided to play to their extreme supporters instead of doing their patriotic duty, feeding the very worst instincts of hyperpartisans more focus on ideological fetishes than the fate of the nation. And of course, let's not forget that Donald Trump very helpfully demanded that Republicans cause a default if they could not wring all their demands from Biden. No wonder the Chinese and Russian propaganda machines have been spinning furiously, spreading lies around the world, proclaiming the end of American power. Is it at all mysterious why the American people think Congress is ineffective and weird? Not even a little bit. To get a sense of what's really happening in Congress, today I speak with Congressman Seth Magaziner, Democrat of Rhode Island. A former state treasurer, Magaziner is in his first term, and I'm curious to find out how this madness looks like from the inside, through the eyes of someone who has only recently joined the circus on Capitol Hill. And a bit later, the next installment of our special interview series, X-Ray Vision, <laughs> an exploration of the real person behind the title. Zaman Qureshi is policy advisor at the Real Facebook Oversight Board. He's also an undergrad at American University. From his dorm room in Washington, he is playing an outsized role in corralling the out-of-control social media companies that, left unchecked, would devour our society and political system. This is a story of emerging leadership and the hope of the future. But first, here's my conversation about the debt ceiling debacle with Congressman Magaziner. Congressman Seth Magaziner, welcome to The X-Ray. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Thank you, sir. And uh, the debt ceiling crisis that if you just dig a little bit uh, what's going on here, it's pretty clear this is a self-created crisis where the United States actually can pay its debts. There's really no issue around that. And the fact is that when we play with the debt ceiling, we're actually undermining the confidence of the world in the United States, especially in the financial markets. Uh, Fitch Ratings, which uh, uh, measures the creditworthiness of countries, has put us on a watch list to downgrade the creditworthiness of, this, of the United States. Morningstar, the same. Uh, this is, of course, something that's quite worrying for anybody who has a mortgage, has a credit card, wants a future in this country. Can you explain what is going on here? Why are we at this moment uh, facing this situation? Well, I'm glad that you said that this is a manufactured crisis because that's exactly right. It was manufactured by uh, the Republicans in the House of Representatives without any necessity for it. We have on the Democratic side what's called a discharge petition, which would set a mechanism in place for us to avoid default that all 213 members of the Democratic caucus have signed on to. And if five Republicans were to sign on as well, uh, this crisis would be over today. 
And so we are here because the Republicans in the House have chosen to put us here. But l- let me take a step back further, because I think there are some broader things at play here that, that have led to this crisis. The first is, when it comes to the federal budget, when President Trump was in office and Republicans controlled both chambers of Congress, they passed a $2 trillion tax cut that went primarily to the wealthiest Americans in corporations, $2 trillion. The national debt under President Trump went up by trillions. And now the Republicans are saying that they are concerned about the size of the debts, that they're concerned about uh, out-year deficits. And so they want cuts to programs that help working people in this country. They want cuts to programs that help seniors, that help veterans, that help children. And they, I believe, proposed a cut that would amount to 22% of all federal discretionary spending, which would be enormously painful. And so that's the context here is that, first of all, the Republicans in Congress and President Trump when he was in the White House essentially gave $2 trillion in tax breaks, primarily to the wealthy. And now we're saying, oh, the deficit's too big. We need to find money somewhere. And they're wanting to cut programs that help working people and seniors and veterans in order to pay for those tax cuts. The second thing that I think is feeding this is the Republican echo chamber has become very insulated. And they somehow convinced themselves that if they threatened a default, if they threatened to wreck the economy and throw us into a tailspin, that President Biden and the Democrats would just throw our hands up and accept any demands that the Republicans would put forward. And they were so convinced of this, I think, that they are now surprised to learn that they do not have as much negotiating leverage as they thought that they did. And that the American people don't accept what they are doing as um, a legitimate strategy. And so the data bears this out. I mean, I think Republicans made a calculation that if the United States were to default, that everyone would blame President Biden just because he was in the White House. That's not what the polling suggests that I've seen. And they just sort of assumed that Democrats and the president, because we don't want to wreck the economy, would accept any concessions that that would make any concessions that the Republicans asked for. And they're realizing now that, that that's not the case, that Democrats are not going to willingly give in to painful cuts to programs like Meals on Wheels and school lunches and TSA and airport safety in order to help pay for the tax cuts that the Republicans jammed through for the wealthy. And so I think that this is just a case of the Republican side realizing that the fiction that they had created for themselves doesn't match with reality. And they're running into that now in a very vivid way. But that that really points to something deeper, right? And and I know you're you're a history major, like me, not a psychologist. Uh, so I'm sure this question will be slightly unfair. But what drives a member of Congress to essentially put the economy at risk on a gambit, essentially, right? Because it, it, the co- economy has been put on risk. This is bared out by the markets. There's some uh, nervousness that's being reported in Bloomberg and the Wall Street Journal. There's uh, a discount to American equities. There's interest rates are moving ever so slightly. So is there no feedback loop for these political leaders who are putting the country at risk? So I'd say, again, uh, it's an echo chamber, I think, on, on the far right. You know, they increasingly are only getting news, if you can call it that, from, from Newsmax and other sources that are hyper-partisan and not serious. They are in these sort of social media bubbles 
where they're only talking to each other. And you see this not just with the debt ceiling. You see this manifesting itself in other ways also. Um, you know, if you've been following what's been happening in the Oversight Committee, the House Oversight Committee, since the Republicans took control of the House a few months ago, all of these kind of conspiracy theories, these anti-Biden conspiracy theories that they're holding hearings on are falling flat because they are based on, in most cases, myths and rumors. And as soon as they are questioned in a public setting and evidence is presented to counteract these conspiracy theories, it's like the Republicans on the Oversight Committee, it doesn't compute for them. They don't know how to respond. Well, their supposed whistleblower has disappeared. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a great example. All, all of these supposed whistleblowers that were going to prove these conspiracies, you know, have either gone missing or, you know, never, you know, obviously never existed to begin with. And I think this echo chamber, I think, has built up over time, you know, and it started with maybe right-wing talk radio, and it's sort of morphed in this social media age through Twitter and Parler and 4chan and kind of other conspiratorial corners of the internet. And, you know, a lot of Republican members of Congress believe this stuff. And one of the, I think, beliefs that that sprung up in the Republican echo chamber was, hey, we can get the Democrats to agree to all of these cuts to programs that are really important to working people by threatening a default. And the reality is Democrats control the White House, control the Senate. We're within five seats of controlling the House. Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker, barely controls his own caucus. <laughs> and, and so they just don't have as much leverage as they thought they did. And, um, you know, I think that there may be some hardliners on the Republican side who want a default because they really believe that, you know, it would hurt President Biden politically. But I don't think that most on their side actually want a default. And I think that most of them are still in touch enough with reality to realize that they would share much of the blame if if that were to happen. And so, you know, I think you're seeing in the last few days, you know, their side is freaking out a little bit because they're realizing that this is not turning out to be as easy for them as, uh, you know, they, they had let themselves believe. And, and they're realizing that Democrats are prepared to fight for the things that we believe in. I'm reading the outline of the deal that's being contemplated. Obviously, we don't know what's going to be the final uh, deal, but without getting in too far into the weeds, it does seem that there's no victory here. Money's moving from one account to another. The federal defense budget is going up. Other budgets are getting capped for two years, but money's moving from other parts of the federal budget. It just seems like basically the same amount of money, roughly speaking, is going to be spent that was in the plan, except this is now, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, this is now a fig leaf to let the people who started this crisis to be able to walk away and claim some version of victory. Is that a fair analysis? Well, listen, I, you know, being a, a junior member, I'm not in the negotiation, so I don't know what the latest version of the deal that's being contemplated looks like. But, um, you know, I would just say again, I think uh, Speaker McCarthy is running into the reality that Democrats still control the Senate, Democrats still control the White House. Public opinion at best is split on this issue. And when you get into the specifics of what programs the Republicans want to cut, Public opinion is squarely on the Democratic side. Do not cut programs to help seniors. Do not cut programs to help veterans. Uh, and they're running into those realities. And um, and I think it's turning out to be much harder for them than they anticipated. You know, that being said, we, we will see what comes up in the next few days. I think there's a strong awareness uh, that a default would be disastrous and is something that we cannot have. But we also don't want to normalize this behavior by... Uh, the Republicans in the House either. We don't want to normalize using 
the full faith and credit of the United States as a political pawn, because if the Republicans in the House were to, you know, get away with all of these cuts and Democrats were to fold to all of these unreasonable demands they're making, we would just be signaling that every time the debt ceiling comes up that, you know, Republicans will have carte blanche to, you know, try to get whatever extreme items they want. And, and, you know, that's not something that we want to normalize because the possibility of an accidental default becomes more significant if we send the message to the Republicans that every single time we come up on the debt ceiling, they can use this as a political pawn. Well, and it's also, I mean, a, a very clear signal of political instability in the United States for international markets. I, I think uh, if there are some failures in communication, is not explaining to the American people how the stability of the dollar and the treasury market are so critical to our own prosperity, let alone the rest of the world that actually runs on dollars. That's exactly right. And, you know, one of the rare areas of true bipartisanship in this Congress has been a awareness by both parties that we need to take a stronger look at countering China's growing aggressiveness toward the United States and our economic superiority and also our democratic ideals and human rights ideals. And so we have a bipartisan committee that's investigating China's aggression. I think we're going to have bipartisan legislation that both parties will support to counter it. But against that context, no one is rooting for a default more right now than the Chinese communist government. Right. Like, right. Of course. Well, Putin, maybe Putin perhaps. Right. They're, and so, they're, you know, <laughs> it's, it is so um, infuriating and intellectually dishonest to the Republicans to, on the one hand, uh, be, say that they are concerned about uh, China's growing aggression. But then on the other hand, be willing to play chicken with uh, with defaulting on, on the debt, because it would absolutely only work to the advantage of our adversaries and particularly China, who is our greatest economic competitor. It's also uh, just as, as a minor, I guess, minor, a major note, which is how humiliating for the United States, the president of the United States had to essentially flee uh, an international conference with our closest allies because, you know, our instability in Washington is such that he had to be present here as opposed to defending the country against China. But but uh, put, let's put that aside for a second. I, I wonder, what's your point of view on this, right? People talk about balancing the budget, talk about uh, lowering deficits. The last time this happened for roughly five minutes was in the 1999-2000, uh, where Republicans and Democrats came together in a messy, messy way. But there was no magical formula except uh, taxes went up and expenditures, I don't even know if they went down, they, they were flattened to the point where we had a tremendous surplus that it was projected that in about 10 years, we would pay back the historical debt of the United States. Of course, that was short-circuited by President Bush by doing a tax, uh, lo- mass tax lowering for uh, primarily wealthier individuals as well. But I'm wondering, uh, fast forward 20 years, 23 years later, is there any willpower on both sides of the aisle to actually have an honest conversation. Because on, on one hand, when I hear what you said, and I think it's factually correct, Republicans have created this crisis and we don't have to speculate about why, but they have, um, yet they will not consider moving, you know, one-tenth of one percent of the tax rate to be able to fund the government. Uh, but I'm not sure if Democrats are willing to bring down expenditures either with the possible exception of a defense expenditure, which would be insane when we're at war, effectively, we're at war with Russia. I mean, it makes no sense. But anyway, how do you see this and what's your personal point of view? Well, when Democrats controlled Congress and the White House in the first two years of the Biden presidency, so in in 2021 and 2022, 
we reduced the deficit in the out years by almost $2 trillion. And it was primarily through making sure that on the revenue side, the wealthiest billionaires and corporations pay more of their fair share in taxes and making it harder to dodge taxes, you know, for billionaires to dodge taxes, but also on the expenditure side. I mean, even something as simple as allowing Medicare to negotiate with the drug companies, you know, and the Inflation Reduction Act reduced the deficit by about half a trillion dollars. And in President Biden's current budget that he's presenting for the next year, he proposes expanding the authority of Medicare to negotiate with the drug companies, and that would reduce spending by another $900 billion. And so I do think there are smart things that we can do on both the revenue side and the expenditure side to close the deficit, and we should do that. And we took a big step in that direction when Democrats were in control of Congress last year. So let's talk about that topic briefly. This has tremendous support among the American people that Medicare should be negotiating prices is such a no-brainer, such an obvious thing. Why should the taxpayer be overpaying for medicine with the taxpayer's own dollar? This is completely crazy, right? How to understand this? Is it as simple as there's K Street, the lobbyists who are just pouring cash from pharma into the pockets of certain members of Congress who then stand up for the most irrational thing in the world, which is let's pay more for medicine. Is that what's happening here? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. You know, on every other expenditure that an organization would make, you negotiate with your vendors to try to get the best price, right? You know, the federal government, I assume, and I hope, you know, when we have copy machines in federal buildings, we negotiate with the companies that sell copy machines to get the best possible price for the taxpayer. And, you know, we endeavor to do the same thing for uh, all manner of, of products that the federal government procures. Why not do it for prescription drugs, which are one of the biggest expenditures of the federal government every year through Medicare? And the only reason, the only reason that Congress years ago put a restriction on allowing administrations to negotiate with the drug companies to get the best possible deals uh, is because those drug companies were funneling money into the campaign accounts of politicians. And of course, the politicians who argue on the behalf of the drug companies instead of on behalf of the American people, they come up with arguments, but none of the arguments really hold water. They'll say things like, well, we want these companies to get more revenue so that they can invest more in R&D and, and develop new drugs that will save lives. It's like, well, wait a minute. If that's our goal here, there are much more efficient ways for the federal government to subsidize R&D of life-saving drugs. It already does. Right. We, exactly. And, and so when we are paying inflated prices for prescription drugs, first of all, we have no control over where that extra you know, inflated margin goes. Is it going to R&D or is it going to executive salaries or going to marketing? And even if it is going to R&D, you have no control over what it's going to R&D for. Is it for life-saving drugs or is it for a new version of Viagra or a new version of a drug to treat male pattern baldness? If we want as a federal government to subsidize research into life-saving drugs, there are much more efficient ways to do it, as you alluded to. Fund the NIH or, you know, give drug companies R&D tax credits specifically tailored to life-saving drugs. We should be subsidizing that kind of research 
but there are much more efficient ways to do it than just across the board overpaying for prescriptions. Yeah, although I have to say, if if uh, if you guys can fund anti balding medicine, I think this would be a good use of <laughs> congressional time. Uh, but so I, you know, I listen to that um, one hand as a journalist, on the other hand as an American, and I want to tear my eyes out because what do I do, right? If I'm John Q. Public, what can I do? And then a secondary question on that is, why do you think? You guys, the Democrats in particular, have such a tough time communicating these issues, right? Because if people truly understood what's making them overpay for medicine, they might actually take some action. I mean, we don't know, but uh, but it doesn't seem like that's kind of uh, arriving at the mind of, of most voters. Well, I was very encouraged by uh, the things that Congress was able to do in the last two years. I mean, you know, passing the Inflation Reduction Act, which allows the federal government to negotiate prices of some drugs, a limited number, but but some for the first time in decades, and made historic investments in clean energy. We also, they, Congress also passed the Chips and Science Act to revitalize American manufacturing and the bipartisan infrastructure bill. And, you know, the last two years where the Republicans took control of the House were an incredibly productive time legislatively where... Congress and President Biden got a lot of good things done that are really going to pay dividends in the coming years. And so I take a lot of hope away from that, that even in a situation where Democrats only had small majorities, you know, a one seat majority in the Senate and a five or six seat majority in the House, they were still able to get a lot of good things done. And so I do take a lot of hope from that. But this is all just another example of how elections matter, you know, and we had uh, elections that put Democrats in control of Congress and the, and the White House. And they got a lot of things done those last two years. Then in this last election, while Democrats outperformed expectations, we still lost the House. And a lot of that progress is ground to a halt. And now instead of a real conversation about how we lower drug prices or energy prices or, uh, you know, expand access to health care or, you know, anything like more productive like that, we're instead having oversight hearings about Hunter Biden's laptop. But uh, you know, I do think that the answer is an obvious one, which is get involved in elections. Elections have consequences. And it's not all bad when, when you have people in charge who actually care about governing. Good things actually can get done. And we, we saw that last year. Let me ask you a personal question. You're new to Congress. You're not new to politics, but you're new to Congress. You don't own the mistakes that have been made in the past, whether you're a party or anybody else. How do you see your, your role there? What are you there to do, really, at the end of the day? You know, there are different kinds of members of Congress, right? And there's no one right kind. So there are some people who are really good at going on cable news every night and taking the fight to the Republicans, right? There are others who are very good at um, sort of the, the behind the scenes strategizing and political maneuvering. I think my strength is that I listen to people and I focus on policy. Like I'm not the kind of person you'll see on cable news every night. There's nothing wrong with that. There's a role for that, but that's just not what I'm built for. I'm a policy nerd at heart, and so I like talking with people and trying to develop policies and, and get things done. I was state treasurer before this for eight years, and we did some great, wonky, uh, impactful things. We uh, started a green bank in Rhode Island to invest in clean energy projects across the state. We did a, a big statewide school construction initiative. And um, so my approach just in my first few months in the House has been to roll up my sleeves and lean into the committee work, which is where a lot of the real policy works gets done in Congress and focus on building relationships with my colleagues uh, so that particularly once we do take back the majority, we'll really be able to uh, get some good things done. But, you know, I, again, I know who I am and who I am is 
is more of a policy wonk than a uh, uh, than a, a talking head. And so, you know, that's that's what I endeavor to be. And uh, just to come to an end to our conversation, uh, this is a question which is kind of a, a silly question at a certain level because um, most politicians will say, of course, I'm optimistic. But uh, <laughs> are you optimistic? I mean, this is pretty grim. Uh, self-created crises, potential for it to go over a cliff, which would then cause all sorts of uh, mayhem in people's lives and so forth. It's out of control from an outsider's point of view. This is out of control. Why are you optimistic? I'm assuming you're optimistic. Why are you optimistic? Well, I want to be clear-eyed about the challenges that we face, first and foremost, because it's not just the default crisis, which will work itself out one way or another in, in the coming weeks. And it's more than that. Uh, we have political system that has become more polarized, particularly on the far right, has become very extreme. We have a rise of racially motivated anti-Semitic and anti-government violence across the country. We have a Supreme Court that has become completely corrupt and I think we have real risks to our democracy as a result. And so we have to be clear-eyed about those challenges. We, you know, our democracy is not automatic and it's in a fragile place right now. Um, And Donald Trump had a lot to do with it, but a lot of those problems predate uh, even him. What gives me hope, however, is that we've been through tough spots as a country before and we've always gotten through it. You know, we've, we've been through constitutional crises, depressions, wars, civil war, we have been through these things before, and the American people have always found a way to overcome uh, fundamental challenges by leaning on our founding values. And uh, every time we have met a crisis, we have come out stronger because of those values of democracy and tolerance and freedom that are at our core. And so it's not automatic. It takes hard work. It takes courage. But I'm inspired by the people who came before us who overcame similar challenges in the past. And I I believe that if we all can exhibit the same courage and the same resolve, we can overcome these challenges that we face today as well. Well, on that optimistic note, uh, in what is objectively a grim day here in D.C., uh, Congressman, thank you so much for joining the X-Ray. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you, sir. And now for something completely different. Our special interview, The X-Ray Vision, looking to discover the real person behind the title. Are leaders born or made? This is the question that historians have been asking for centuries. And perhaps the answer is that it's a little bit of both. Zaman Qureshi is policy advisor at the Real Facebook Oversight Board, a global organization working to bring real accountability to Facebook and its awesome power over our democracy and collective future. He's also an undergrad at American University. Thoughtful, soft-spoken, and unusually bright, Qureshi inspires optimism, optimism rooted in the hope that tomorrow's leaders will outshine the rather dull specimens populating Washington today. Here's the X-Ray Vision with Zaman Qureshi. Zaman Qureshi, welcome to the X-Ray Vision. Thank you so much for having me, Fernando. Thank you, Zaman. Let's get started uh, with a basic question. If you could tell something to the founders, what would it be? I would say that um, that they got a lot wrong. <laughs> And um, okay. <laughs> and they did their best, and their work in progress is still very much a work in progress. What would be your major at the Electoral College? Um, 
What is what does that mean? I don't know. What do you think? Mm, I think I would want to focus specifically on the ways in which voters are influenced and how they perceive certain messages and all the noise and bluster that comes in an election, how that factors into ultimately how they decide to vote or whether they don't vote. Fantastic. What is the quality you most like in a politician? Honesty. I think that Representative Jeff Jackson, I think is his name, uh, from North Carolina, he makes these TikTok videos where he sits down with the viewer and he levels with them about what's happening in Congress. And I have never seen a more effective use of social media by a politician. And I know that there, I go to school in DC, so we care a lot about politics at, at American University. But to talk about Representative Jackson with my other peers, people just resonate with his content and the way that he delivers messages. It's not partisan. It's not caught up in the bluster of media and spin. And he, he tells it like it is. And you know, I think at the end of the day, every politician has an agenda and a, and a focus that they're trying to achieve. And if his agenda is really to deliver information in a clear and succinct way, then I'm all for it. And I think that goes into the ideas of, of honesty and openness and transparency. What's your Sunday morning passion? I am a avid soccer fan, football. Um, my dad was born in the UK. My mom grew up there. I was born a Liverpool fan. I will uh-huh. die a Liverpool fan. <laughs> um, Liverpool play sometimes over the weekends, uh, sometimes midweek, but generally almost every weekend. So weekends are spent watching, watching soccer and then catching up on, on homework and schoolwork. What superpower would you like to have, uh, invisibility or flight? Definitely invisibility. I think that there are so many conversations and discussions that happen behind the scenes that I would love to know, like how they shook out. Um, definitely in the past, like a more retrospective view of who said what to this person and why did it lead them to do this thing? Do we have too many congressmen, congresspeople, or too many senators? I think we have we have too many Congress people who are caught up in the noise of performance and delivering anger for the sake of media attention. I would love if politicians, um, to go back to my previous point, leveled with voters more. And I think more of them doing that would sort of bring us back to a sense of parity of of doing politics the way it was with respect and understanding for those on the other side of the aisle. Which historical figure do you most identify with? It's a good question. I would say that I I probably identify most with I don't know. I don't know actually. Okay. Which living person do you most despise? <laughs> That's an interesting question. Um, I think despise is the wrong word because it implies that there is no sense of 
humanity to that person and that no common ground can be found. And that's something that I've always engaged with throughout all of my work is, you know, I'm a young person in the tech policy space. This is an incredibly bipartisan issue area. And to achieve bipartisanship will require um, buy-in from lots of different individuals. So I get very frustrated with these days, probably Jim Jordan or Marjorie Taylor Greene and the rhetoric that they espouse. But at the end of the day, I also recognize that there, however difficult it is to see that there is a person behind all of that, that even if we can't come to any sort of agreement, that our common humanity somehow still exists in between there. And, and maybe, just maybe, we can come to some sort of common understanding through that. Okay. And uh, who is your hero? Um, I would say both of my parents are my heroes. Um, I'm sure that's a common answer, but my parents are immigrants to the United States who came from sort of a, a very racialized UK back in the 80s and 90s. And they have worked incredibly hard for my sister and I to come to where we are today. But I think that they, they also have established really core fundamental values that I hold true and dear to my heart up, around honesty and, and respect and recognizing your place and, and being humble, um, but also hard work and just how, like how far hard work can get you if you apply yourself and, and continue to pursue what you want. And Zaman, uh, final question, scotch or bourbon? <laughs> so I don't, this is funny. I don't drink. Um, I'm under 21, but there is, I'm the head delegate of the American University Model UN team. I'm finishing up my second year and we just ended our season. So I will be stepping aside to let the next head delegate come in and there's a running joke on my team that i am a ginger ale passionate fan um <laughs> so different different team members will try and get me to drink different varieties of ginger ale here and there and uh it's sort of a running bit and joke that that i've enjoyed and definitely played into <laughs> <laughs> All right, Zaman Qureshi, thank you so much for joining the X-Ray Vision today. Thank you for having me. Thank you, sir. As Plato said, one of the penalties for refusing to participate in politics is that you end up being governed by your inferiors. This idea seems to apply to the characters yammering about controlling the federal budget by destroying the American economy. The debt ceiling has morphed into a tool of extortion and stupidity with the real potential to dynamite American global power. And while the whole show has been literally unnecessary, just look at the meager wins for both sides in the negotiation, it's an object lesson in government dysfunction. Only when Americans tire of this clownish behavior will the Congress focus on the real issues affecting the American people. So maybe instead of Plato, we can learn from another philosopher, Groucho Marx. 
He said, politics is the art of looking for trouble, finding it everywhere, diagnosing it incorrectly, and applying the wrong remedies. I want to thank Congressman Magaziner for his candid views today, and also Saman Qureshi for infusing us with a bit of hope and optimism. And I want to thank the Issue One production team, Nicole Legacy, Sydney Richards, and Renee Pineda. And I want to thank you for joining me on this episode of The X-Ray. I'm Fernando Espuelas. For more information on this podcast, check out thexray.org and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. The X-Ray with Fernando Espuelas is an editorially independent production of Issue One.